Now, my preparation to preach today, I came across this quote by a guy called Andrew Murray, uh, not the tennis player, uh, another Andrew Murray. He said, the man who mobilizes the Christian church to pray will make the greatest contribution to world evangelization in all of history. Got to be honest, something stirred in me as I read that quote. I hasten to add, I'm a bit of a realist, so I'm not expecting to be the person who makes the greatest contribution to world evangelization in all of history. But what if God would use me for that, at least in this church? Because here's the thing. I believe with all of my heart that God wants to do something in this church regarding prayer. Something far greater, far more powerful far more significant than anything that we have seen up until now. You know, every major work of God, every major awakening in the history of Christianity, whether that's in a church or in a university campus, in a workplace, in a neighborhood, every single one has been characterized by persistent corporate prayer. Every single one. Now as a church... We've already experienced a phenomenal amount of blessing from God. But I also believe that God has way more for us. And I'm not many saying that for hype. I really genuinely believe it. God has got so much more for this city, for our families, our friends, our neighbors, where we work. But it won't come apart from prayer. As Samuel Zweimer put it, The history of missions is the history of answered prayer. I'm convinced that when we stand before God, we will discover that every soul ever brought to a knowledge of Christ was in some way related to intercessory prayer. Here's the question that haunts me. What if God had a lot more for us than we have currently seen or experienced but we never got it because we simply didn't really know how to ask. Now, I'm aware that straight out of the gate, straight away, some of you are going to be ever so slightly cynical about all of this. Because sometimes you pray and things happen, but sometimes you pray and they don't. And sometimes you don't pray, and the things that you don't pray for, the things you forgot to pray for, well, they happen anyway. Am I right? I think this is an issue for all of us at times. It's like we're just not completely sure that it actually works. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at an absolutely astonishing account in Acts chapter 12 that describes what can happen when a church takes this seriously and prays. But before we get there, I want to look at another passage that's sort of like the prequel. If you want to turn to it, it's in Luke chapter 11. And the reason I want to start there is because the books of Luke and Acts are like two volumes of the same book. They kind of fit together like hand and glove. And so Luke shows Jesus teaching something in the gospel and then shows us how the first church, the first believers actually went about applying the message in real life. It's like Luke's gospel presents the doctrine, the theory, and the book of Acts describes the application. And so what Jesus teaches about prayer in Luke 11, we're then going to go on and see applied and experienced by the church in Acts chapter 12. 
That all starts with the disciples asking Jesus a question. They say to him, Lord, teach us to pray. You see, they'd been living in close proximity to Jesus for quite some time. And they'd noticed over time that prayer very much seemed to be the source of power behind all of his remarkable miracles and his phenomenal preaching. I think that's why they didn't say, Lord, teach us how to perform miracles. Or Lord, please teach us how to preach like you. I mean, probably that's what I'd have asked for. But they saw that the explanation for all of that was actually his extraordinary prayer life. And so the question they ask him is, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray like you pray. And in response, the first thing Jesus does is teach them what we now call the Lord's Prayer. And then straight on the back of that, he launches into this pretty bizarre story about a man who was fast asleep in his bed when a friend comes knocking on his door at midnight asking for three loaves of bread to feed some unexpected visitors. Now, a few details to help you feel the full impact, the full force of that story. First of all, people tended back then to go to bed when the sun went down at around 7 p.m. And so midnight really was the middle of the night. There was absolutely no chance this guy would have still been awake. He would have been in a very deep sleep. Secondly, families back then used to sleep together in one area. And so for this guy to get up would have meant disturbing his entire family. And thirdly, on top of all of that, three loaves of bread would have been enough to feed an entire family for several days. In other words, this neighbor is making a ridiculously excessive request at the most unwelcome time possible. But Jesus says in verse 8, I'll tell you this, though he won't do it for friendship's sake, if you keep knocking long enough, he will get up and give you whatever you need because of your shameless persistence. In other words, the neighbor eventually hands over the bread, not because this person is his friend, because let's be honest, after this unfortunate incident, he probably wasn't going to be his friend anymore. He gives it to him because of his boldness and his shameless persistence in asking. And so Jesus says, won't your heavenly father, who never sleeps and who loves you like precious children, won't he give you whatever you need? I mean, if even an annoying neighbor can get an excessive request at the most inconvenient of times through persistent asking, don't you think that you, who are like children to God, not like an annoying neighbor, don't you think that you can get God to give you what you need if you persist in asking? Jesus goes on, verse 9, and so I tell you, keep on asking keep on asking and you'll receive what you ask for keep on seeking and you will find keep on knocking and the door will be open to you for everyone who asks receives everyone who seeks finds and to everyone who knocks the door will be opened now without wishing to get too technical with you Those three verbs, ask, seek, knock, 
They're in a Greek verb form that implies continuous action, which just goes to reinforce this whole idea of perseverance, this whole idea of persistence in prayer. It's like if you know for sure that somebody is inside a house, if they don't respond straight away, you keep on banging on the door. And that's what Jesus says prayer's like. If you really, desperately, absolutely want God to do something, you're going to keep on asking. Now, just to say, the whole context in this passage, if you have a look, is about asking for the Holy Spirit. And so really, Jesus is saying, if you want more of the Holy Spirit, keep on asking. If you want more of the Holy Spirit, keep on knocking on the door of heaven. If you want more of the Holy Spirit, keep on seeking him. Now, you might be thinking, why? I mean, if it's actually God's will to give you his Holy Spirit, then why doesn't he answer at the first time of asking? Do you want to know the answer? Or so do I. I mean, I haven't got a clue. I have no idea whatsoever. Other than God perhaps testing us to see how much we really want this. But here's what I do know. This is clearly what Jesus is teaching here. You have got to keep on asking. A guy called Charles Spurgeon, he put it like this. He said that some of heaven's best fruit doesn't come by simply shaking the tree once. You have to keep on shaking it. Now, this teaching is so counterintuitive that Jesus saw the need to teach it not once but twice. And so later on in Luke, in Luke 18, he teaches the exact same principle, only this time through an even more extreme parable. He says one day he told his disciples a story to show that they should always pray and never give up. Here's the story. There was a judge in a certain city, he said, who neither feared God nor cared about people. A widow of that city came to him repeatedly saying, give me justice in in this dispute with my enemy. The judge ignored her for a while, but finally he said to himself, I don't fear God or care about people, but this woman is driving me crazy. I'm going to see that she gets justice because she is wearing me out with her constant requests. And then, Quite unbelievably, Jesus says that this is a picture of what it's like to pray to God. Now, of course, the point isn't to compare God to an unjust judge. The point is to contrast him with one. I mean, if even an unrighteous, selfish judge who doesn't care for people will eventually answer if someone keeps on persistently asking, then surely our Heavenly Father who cares deeply and passionately about his children, surely he will give us what we need if we keep on asking him. God is not like an unjust judge, and we are not like an annoying widow to him. He's not like a neighbor that we're pestering. He's a father who loves us deeply and passionately. The widow approaches the judge as a stranger, but we come boldly into his presence as dearly loved children. The widow had no right to claim in the court. Hebrews 10 assures us that we come boldly to the throne of grace because of Jesus. 
I believe that Jesus would say to each one of us, do you really think I won't help if you ask? I think about it, I died for you. I've done the hardest thing imaginable for you. Why wouldn't I then give you this much smaller thing? I've done the greater thing. Of course, I'm going to do these smaller things if you ask. Listen, there is no request that you could ever bring to God that is bigger or greater or harder than what he has already done for you. You can come to God with your requests absolutely convinced of his goodness and of his power and of his desire to bless you. All that being said, let's finally turn to Acts 12 and see how the first believers, the first church, went about applying this teaching. Just to give you a bit of the context, Herod, the ruler, has just captured James, the brother of John, who was one of the main leaders in the church. And Herod has had him executed, beheaded, dead. And at the point where we join the story, Herod has now grabbed Peter and thrown him into prison and is planning to do the same thing to him. Now, just try to imagine what it must have been like to be in that church at that time. The sense of shock, the grief, I'm guessing a whole load of confusion. I mean, what on earth is God doing here? And I'm guessing a lot of fear as well. So what do they do? Verse 5, but while Peter was in prison, the church prayed very earnestly for him. The night before Peter was to be placed on trial, he was asleep, fastened with two chains between two soldiers. Others stood guard at the prison gate. Suddenly, there was a bright light in the cell, and an angel of the Lord stood before Peter. The angel struck him on the side to awaken him and said, Quick, get up! And the chains fell off his wrists. Then the angel told him, Get dressed and put on your sandals. And he did. Now put on your coat and follow me, the angel ordered. And so Peter left the cell following the angel. But all the time, he thought it was a vision. He didn't realize it was actually happening. They passed the first and second guard posts and came to the iron gate leading to the city. And this opened for them all by itself. And so they passed through and started walking down the street. And then the angel suddenly left him. Peter finally came to his senses. It's really true, he said. The Lord has sent his angel and saved me from Herod and from what the Jewish leaders had planned to do to me. When he realized this, he went to the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many were gathered for prayer. He knocked at the door in the gate and a servant girl named Rhoda came to open it. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that instead of opening the door, she ran back inside and told everyone, Peter is standing at the door. You're out of your mind, they said. When she insisted, they decided it must be his angel or a ghost. Meanwhile, Peter continued knocking on the door. When they finally opened the door and saw him, 
They were amazed. He motioned for them to quieten down and told them how the Lord had led him out of prison. Tell James, a different James to the one who had just been executed. This was probably James, the brother of Jesus. Tell James and the other brothers what happened, he said. And then he went to another place. Okay, there are three quick things I want to show you about prayer from this passage, all of which I think flow from the lessons learned in those two parables in Luke's gospel. Here's the first thing. When they were afraid, they simply prayed. When they were afraid, they simply prayed. They had every reason to be fearful for their future. And so what did they do? They talked to God about it. They were powerless to do anything to change their situation. Things looked incredibly bleak. And so they prayed. Here's my question. What do you do when you're afraid? What do you do when your circumstances turn bad and you're powerless to do anything about it? What do you do when you can't see any way through? What do you do when... Even you can't sleep at night because you're so worried, so anxious, so stressed about something. In Psalm 4 verse 8, David is in great distress. People are making pretty brutal threats against him. But he says, in peace, I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, will keep me safe. It's like... I'm talking to the one whose arm controls the entire universe. Who said that no good thing would he withhold from those who trust him. Who takes care of me like a father. Who promises to direct all of my steps and lead me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So if I believe all of that, why wouldn't I bring my requests to him? And why wouldn't I find peace in the knowledge that if he's got it covered, there is no need to worry? That's the first thing we see here. When they were afraid, they simply prayed. Here's the second thing. Until you know that life is war, you cannot know what prayer is for. I'm quoting here from John Piper, who says this about prayer. Prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. It is not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we try to make it a domestic intercom to merely call upstairs for more comforts in the den. Until you know that life is war, you cannot know what prayer is for prayer is for the accomplishment of a wartime mission now can you imagine peter in prison facing almost certain execution and the church his friends gathering to pray and only a handful pitching up And for those who do gather to spend the evening praying for nice weather at the church picnic at the weekend and for their own personal prosperity and for traveling mercies at the end of the meeting. This was literally life or death. And so they prayed very earnestly, it says. They knew it was God's will for the church to get the gospel to the very ends of the earth. 
regardless of what Herod wanted. They weren't sure how it was going to happen. They weren't sure even if Peter was going to make it. But they knew that God's purpose was to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. So when it looks like they're being shut down, they get on their knees and they say, Lord, you promised this. You, in your power, have got to make it happen. So again, here's my question for you. What do you know to be God's will? What are you personally so sure about that it doesn't matter how many obstacles are thrown in the way, you are not going to let God go until he answers? Or, when you pray, are you actually more concerned with trying to persuade God to do your will, not his? Because here's one of my observations. I think a lot of people, including myself, don't tend to get their prayers answered because they're praying to God, not with God. We think of praying to God when we should actually be praying with God. Here's what I mean by that. God has already shown us his will in Scripture, hasn't he? For example, we know it isn't God's will for the church to wither and die. We know it isn't God's will for Satan to overrun and destroy our families. We know it isn't God's will for our community, our city, our world to perish. Which is why I think prayer is designed ultimately to be something you do with God. Where you open up the scriptures, you read what God says in his word, you grow in understanding of his will, you receive faith from the Holy Spirit as you read it, and then boldly turn it to prayer to your heavenly father, saying this is the mission, this is what you have said, these are your promises, now please let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's like we keep on knocking on the door because we know that God's in there. And we're confident that we're asking him to do something he's already said, he's already promised he's going to do. And so we take those promises of God, knowing that it is his will to do this stuff, and we do battle in prayer until these things become a reality. You know, sometimes people say something that sounds so spiritual But it's absolute nonsense. They say, prayer doesn't change the situation, it changes me. That is absolute rubbish. That is simply not true. As Spurgeon put it, prayer moves the arm that moves the world. Now I know that perhaps this might seem slightly contradictory, But I'm 100% convinced that God is completely sovereign. He's 100% in control of everything. He has power over all things. He can do whatever he wants, however he wants, wherever he wants. And yet at one and the same time, I think he's designed the universe in such a way that there are certain things that won't happen unless we pray. There are certain things that aren't happening Because we're not praying. Because the way his will is done on earth, ultimately, is through the faithful, prevailing prayers of us, his people. As John Wesley put it, 
I'm convinced that God does nothing except in answer to prayer. Now, do you believe that? Do you really deep down believe that? Listen, if we believe this stuff, please, let's not waste time with little prayers. Let's not merely fill God's ears with small requests. Let's not treat prayer like room service to make our lives a little more comfortable than they are right now. I think what we desperately need is to get a much bigger view of God and of his mission in the earth. For us to feel the scale of the need in front of us. For us to see the influence of the powers of darkness on the lives of the people we deeply care about and love. For us to ache with compassion for those who are lost without Jesus. And for us to be convinced that his power is able to make a real difference to all of this. If only we cared enough to ask. Until you know that life is war, you cannot know what prayer is for. And then thirdly and finally, they prayed things into existence through their persistence. Ah, I see what's going on there. Don't you see how this story in Acts illustrates what we learnt in Luke's gospel? That they knew it was God's will for the church to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. And right now they're faced with a really significant problem. One of their main leaders has been taken out. The other one is about to be killed too. They're not sure if Peter is even going to make it or not. But they know it's not God's will for Satan to destroy the church or to impede its progress. And so they get on their knees and they pray, God, you've got to make something happen here. And we're not going to let you go until you open the doors and bless our efforts and overcome our enemies. And they kept at it and at it and at it and at it through the night and would not give up. So one final time, here's my question. What do you care enough about to persist for it in prayer until it happens? What do you care enough about to persist for it in prayer until it happens? You know, I think very often we perhaps have a tendency to give up way too early. Sometimes we just have to keep on asking The first church, they prayed like the needy neighbor, like the wearisome widow, for their good father to give. And one of the main things that Acts shows us is that when the church prays like that, things happen. Things change. Things explode. Prison doors come flying off their hinges. Thousands of people come to faith. Cities are turned upside down, not merely from technique or from skill or from careful planning, from prayer. Remember back to Acts 1. They pray in the upper room for 10 days. Finally, the Holy Spirit comes. Peter preaches his first ever sermon. 3,000 are saved. 
Acts chapter 4, again, they pray. And God fills them with such courage that they turn the city of Jerusalem upside down. By the end of Acts 5, the church in Jerusalem is now over 10,000 people. And some of the harshest critics, like the Jewish priests, and eventually Paul himself, they're getting saved. Here in Acts 12, 12 years later, they're still praying. And God blows up a prison and saves Peter's life. And then right at the end of the chapter, if you read on, you'll see how God strikes down Herod and he's eaten up by worms. And the chapter finishes with us being told that the word of God increased and multiplied. In the next chapter, chapter 13, a further six years have elapsed and the church is still praying. As a result, God raised up Paul to be a missionary, the greatest missionary the world has ever known. All of these things happen because the church prayed. Which is why the one concern of the devil, Samuel Chadwick says, is to keep the saints from prayer. Our enemy fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks our wisdom, but trembles when we pray. Prayer turns ordinary mortals into men and women of power. It brings fire It brings rain. It brings life. It brings God. There is no power like that of prevailing prayer. Now look, if I'm being honest, up until now, I don't think I have led you well enough in all of this. And so over the next few months, We're going to be doing our best to create more opportunities for us to pray together as a church in our sites, in smaller groups, whenever, wherever. But you don't need to wait for the official announcement to start applying this message. What's stopping you? Accepting the challenge right now and resolving to become a person of persistent prayer from this point on. Now I know that life's busy. And it might not always be convenient. But I'm not sure that the first church in the book of Acts really thought in terms of convenience. Do you want to experience more of the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life? In your family? In this church? In your workplace? In your school? Your college? When there's an opportunity for you to share your faith? When there's an opening to pray for the sick? But if you want that, it happens through prevailing prayer. Deep down, do you believe that the greatest need of everyone that you know is to know Jesus? And for those who know him already, to know him even more deeply. Do you believe God when he says, I want none to perish? Nothing will thwart the advance of my kingdom. Jesus will come at the end of time for a glorious bride, but not before the gospel has reached the very ends of the earth. Well, you know what you've got to do? Pray and don't give up. I believe that God would say to us, I've got so much more I want to give you. But you're going to have to press through and persevere in prayer if you want to lay hold of it.